friends, welcome to the Living Truth Podcast. This is Kristen Carey hosting today, and I am really honored to be here with Dr. Sherry Keffer. Sherry, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. I am so excited to be with you, Kristen. I know it's fun. I mean, we, we were just reminiscing about how we met like two and a half years ago and look at where you are now. And we are both lovers of partners and their spouses or significant others. And it's just going to be amazing to talk today about how we can serve them, help them and care for them as they're healing. Absolutely. And Dr. Sherry, your book, Intimate Deception is my favorite book about the topic of sexual betrayal. It, it literally is hands down what I think is the most comprehensive in a package. Here's the information you need to heal. And so I'm so thankful that you wrote it. And I'm so thankful for a lot of the tools in the book that help partners. So we're going to talk about that today. But you, you guys also need to know that Dr. Sherry is herself a partner, which you'll find out if you read her book, which I think there's no way to understand this issue unless you've been through it yourself. I mean, really, I I think it helps a ton. And, you know, I know there's so many uh, that are listening right now that aren't anywhere near uh, believing what, where you are right now. And then even the conversations as a partner, uh, where you're at, where I'm at it, you can change. I just want to bring you hope because thinking about that book, that would have been the last thing I would have wanted to write, um, would have even been thinking about in my mind. I was just trying to get up in the morning and put my feet in the ground and breathe. And, yeah. but you know what? God is so good because God just takes all the pain of what we've gone through. And if we heal and let God use it, uh, he will make fish and loaves of what's happened to you. And you are living proof of that, as am I, right? He takes all this pain and makes it into a purpose to serve people and not just to serve other people, but I mean, wouldn't you say that because of all the work you've done on yourself, all the healing that you're more joyful, more vibrant, like more whole than you ever were before your betrayal came out? I'm a completely different person. I mean, today, if he were to meet me today, he probably wouldn't recognize me. Not that he wouldn't recognize me face to face, but like how I roll, how I carry myself. I've grown a ton, but I also wandered a long time. Uh, I, you know, Kristen, I could tell you all the things not to do based on not having a roadmap, not knowing where to go, not having the resources back then. And I just don't want that for anybody. I don't want anyone to have to lag and crawl on their elbows through this because they don't know how to heal or what are the best resources and all of that. And I know that's your heart too. Absolutely. What year did your betrayal erupt in your marriage? It was a while ago. It was over two decades ago. Yeah. Um, so as you know, two decades ago, I mean, seriously, one of the, the stories that I tell is, um, Connor and I were really in a bad place. And I talk about just the vulnerability of being in the Sahara desert. And I happened to be working at a place and there was a very nice guy there that, you know, he would talk to me from time to time, but he just happened to put his hand on my arm, just like, it wasn't anything, he wasn't coming on to me, 
But that contact, being in the Sahara Desert and in my relationship with Connor, I I felt so flooded and I ran across the street to a liquor store at a payphone. That's my point. There were payphones back then. And I called my best friend, Julie, and I said, Julie, this is what happened. And she loved me well. And she said, Sherry, you go home. You go home. Don't don't you stay another minute. And, and that accountability is so important because when we're going through sexual betrayal and we feel so unseen, unloved, um, uh, uh, unsafe. We um, become very vulnerable to a whole lot of things. And uh, so it was back in the days of payphones, you know. But since then, right, there's, there's groups, there's lots yeah. more people that are talking about it. Right. Um, but I, it's been a long time. And, um, you know, I, I guess there's a lot of couples that are looking for help and hope here. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I thought you were going to say when you ran across the street to the liquor store, speaking of partners needing to find relief and vulnerable is how many partners I know who end up developing a problem with alcohol because they're in so much pain. So I, I thought you were going to say, I ran across the street to grab a bottle of wine, but you were going to, yeah. you were talking pay phones. So yes, yes, you are dating yourself. And I am not too far behind you possibly because mine erupted in 04. So going on, like going on two decades ago and there were no resources or, or help. So I am, I am so thankful that we have resources now. One thing I want to ask you about is I loved how you talk about a woman's past trauma and how when that's the backdrop for when she goes through betrayal trauma, how impactful that is. So how do you think past trauma exacerbates the trauma of betrayal? Great question. You know, I, I actually call my, myself trauma squared. And trauma squared for me means I had trauma in my family of origin and trauma with Connor through the betrayal. I think it made me more vulnerable and less equipped because growing up in a home, one of the things I experienced is growing up in a home with severe, severe mental illness. Uh, I had a very dysfunctional family um, and very disconnected. I grew up and because of that in high school, started dating guys, uh, was physically assaulted, um, had situations in college that happened, had police called because of a second assault I had. And one guy spray paint my car completely green. I mean, just you, you, you think about all these things that could happen to a human being. And, and one thing that I didn't know about myself is because of growing up in a home where I wasn't seen, heard, or known, I didn't have a voice. And I didn't even know how to say no. Case in point, when the police were called that night, I, you know, a gentleman threw me up against a brick wall. I guess I shouldn't call him a gentleman, but a guy threw me up against a brick wall. Uh, I do believe guys are gentlemen, but this was not one of those moments. And somebody heard me scream and called the police. Well, the police came around the corner and uh, you know what I did? I drove away. He had thrown me up against brick wall, ripped my shirt down the front and, and left. And I drove away. I had were, help. Were right. you ashamed? Is that why? 
I felt shame. I felt tremendous shame. And I think I felt fear. Now, if something like that were to happen, which God forbid it does, but I feel like I have more in me, not that, you know, I would somehow maybe even not be able to get out of the situation that I'm in, but post that, like I would stay and talk to the police. I would file charges like, but that's not the girl I was because I didn't have much of a core. And that came out of a lack of being supported by parents or even knowing myself. I was very disconnected. You, you wouldn't know that maybe if you saw me, but inside I had a very shallow core and I didn't have the hoofspa I needed. So going into my marriage to Connor, right? When the pornography was continuing to happen, I didn't set boundaries. I didn't say no, or put any kind of framework around, uh, what I needed to protect me, any consequences for self-protection, I, I got mad. And then Mm -hmm. I did what I think a lot of us do. I went into denial and I hoped for the best. I, I hoped that it wouldn't happen again. And I, I lived there for a number of years. And the, the thing, Kristen, and I know you can appreciate this because of my denial and because of Connor's deception, there was a whole lot of bad stuff that was happening right under the surface that neither one of us were dealing with. And I think that's how some of us who are trauma squared uh, are when, when we're betrayed in our relationship. Uh, we, we may not have the reserves we need to, to fight and fight well. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Um, one thing that I wrote down from your book that I thought was so powerful related to this is that ongoing trauma develops extraordinary coping resources in us, including tolerating the intolerable, like you just mentioned. Fantasy, which I can relate to, I would, that's how I coped with a lot of my traumatic stuff in my childhood. Also creative workarounds, body symptoms, memories, and forms of dissociation. So uh, you also said the inability to stop what's harming us is at the root of most traumas. And so for children, of course, we can't stop it. Then we become adults and here we find ourselves as betrayed partners where we can't stop the porn use. I mean, there's other things you and I know we can teach women to do to empower themselves. But if a woman is isolated with this secret, she doesn't know what to do, right? One's in chronic trauma and stress you talk in your book about how they can gain help from the other governing brain systems in order to coordinate care. And I love the way you teach about your triune council and the roles that they play, especially in triggering or dangerous situations. Can you explain that, Dr. Sherry? Yeah, you know, and and it's so funny, the triune council came out of part of my experience as a betrayed partner and knowing how we feel when we're going through the thick of it. Uh, we, we have so much stress and the idea of trying to talk about the brain and what goes on in the brain feels like a college education class when we're in second grade. We just can't compute. Our brains are mushy. We've got Alex Thymia, some of us, right? And, and so I, I love the brain. I worked five years with Dr. Daniel Amen. I am a, a 
follower of Dr. Dan Siegel and Dr. Vanderkock, these amazing people that love the brain. And I created the Triune Council, which is cartoon characters that, um, that put together different brain parts. So the first of the characters is Ugg. Ugg is my our primal brain. He's my thug with a club. Imagine a caveman. It looks like a caveman, yeah. He is a caveman, right? And but he's that primal brain. And actually, I have he's he's he has the most power out of everybody. The one that has a second power is Amy, and she is the amygdala. And the amygdala is the part of the brain that holds highly charged emotional memories and has to do with with feeling and um, relationships. And Ugg and Amy together, Dan Siegel calls them the emotional brain. Uh, Ugg is always asking, he's the thug with the club, he's asking, am I safe? Amy, the amygdala is asking, am I loved? And then the third part of this triune council is the CEO. And the CEO is asking, what do I, what do I think about all this? So the CEO is that logical part of our brain. It's that prefrontal cortex, which is actually one third of our brain. It's a lot of landscape, but let me tell you something. The CEO is third on third down. If, uh, if we're triggered, we are not really thinking clearly about what we should say and do. Who's in charge when we're triggered? Ugh. And if there is a discovery, let's say we discover porn on our husband's phone, what team is responsible for that? It's actually a combination of Ugh and Amy. They're our emotional brain. And Amy is, you know, because she's am I loved, that's not a loving thing, right? And if Amy ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. So she and Ugg join forces, become the emotional brain, and, and oftentimes um, do whatever she needs to get our attention because her goal is for us to be safe. Her goal is for us to be seen and heard and, and, uh, or to be loved, but she and Ugg together are trying to get us safe together, safe and love, safe and love is what they're working on. And then there's one more part. Uh, she's not really in the Triune Council. She's actually a cousin of Amy. Uh, she's the hippocampus and there's actually two of those. And I call her harmony. Uh, she actually looks like a, a little piece of broccoli. I, I don't know. The, yeah, she's, she's very cute. She's green, but she, uh, holds all those highly charged emotional memory she stores them date stamps them and even like sorts them why we sleep so that's why for partners when we have those anniversary days mm -hmm. and you cannot even be aware of the the date of the calendar but you'll start having kind of a flush in your heart well well guess what it's because harmony is reminding you that that is a date that wasn't good it's a bad day right um it's weird you know, especially as far as trauma, it might surface when you're not even planning on it. Right. Um, but it's because she stored it. And her goal is to make sure that you're safe going forward. And, and so that's why some of the couples, when they work on eventually once they've established sobriety and there is safety in the coupleship, I, I, you and I both know couples that work to redeem those big D-days. Uh, 
to to change them, to acknowledge them. I, I've got some husbands that will actually be mindful of that. Some of them even eventually over time, you know, their harmony is like, woo, dude, you better remember this date, but they will acknowledge it in a caring way by just saying, Hey, I know this Friday is, is one of those big days for us. And it was a day that you felt incredible harm by me. And I just want you to know I'm aware of it. Is there anything I can do to care for you? Um, as the best question. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It's just acknowledging that they're there. We don't have to record them. Harmony does, but we can work together um, and be aware of those. And there's things that we can do. So when, when he, the one who's, uh, who's hurt you, right. If it's a, he that's betrayed you um, because I know betrayal is both guys and gals, right. But for him to be mindful of that and bring it to you, he's actually not only bringing it to you, but he's bringing it to Amy. Amy, the amygdala is, am I loved? That's a very caring, thoughtful thing to do, but it really helps to calm Amy down inside of us. It helps Mm. to create a new memory path that's positive and good. So Dr. Sherry, when we are triggered and Ugg is in charge, right? And he and Amy are kind of doing their dance. What do we do about that? I mean, how does, how can our listeners who are experiencing triggers regularly get the CEO back in the triune council? Cause he's kind of kicked out when Ugg takes over, right? You're absolutely right. Right. And, and so when Ugg, when we're triggered, Ugg is large and in charge and Ugg and Amy, right? That emotional brain, they get going. I want you to imagine, I've got this picture in my book um, of all of them, the Triune Council in a car driving down the road uh, and they're together. And I, in my picture, I have the CEO, he's driving, you know, he's in the front because he's got the directions and Amy's sitting next to him in in the passenger seat right up front and she's just enjoying the ride. And then Ugg is in the back seat. He's he's having a great time because everything is good. They're driving on the road to V-A-G-U-S. Has to do with polyvagal. There's a Uh vagus nerve, right? So they're driving on that road and everything is good. When there's a trigger, everything changes. What happens is Ugg jumps out of the back seat into the front seat, grabs the steering wheel. Amy gets onto her cell phone and she's like, help me, help me, right? And then the CEO... He's like barely holding onto the bumper. That's what happens in our body. Our mind, our thoughts aren't there. So what we need to do, the first thing is bottom, it's called bottom-up regulation. I have to attend to UG first. I have to attend to UG and get UG to quiet down. Remember, the CEO is hanging on the bumper. You're not going to be thinking like, Okay, let me see what I'm going to say to him this evening. I mean, our brains, we just see red. Speaking of seeing red, that's one way you can calm Ugg down. Basically, get get into a seat, get your feet flat on the floor, and look around and ask yourself to look for four red things. Just look around, four red things, and name them. Now, I know some of you might be going, that just sounds weird. Actually, no, it's not. What it's doing, it's bottom-up regulation. It's getting me into my body. It's getting my cerebellum to work. It's getting um, UG 
back on uh, to quiet down so that my CEO can get back online. It's actually like taking Ugg who's freaking out and imagine a two-year-old child. If you have a two-year-old child or grandchild and they're not doing well, right? If you get more upset and more angry at them because they're not doing well, what do they do? What get do more they do? upset? Yeah. Get, yeah. <laughs> what intuitively as moms or grandmas, what do we do? We quiet that we, we have to kind of calm ourselves. We have to calm that child down. Well, that's ugh. Getting, getting down, quieting our body, looking at like distractive, what are four things, right? There's, I can see in my office, there's a phone, I've got some birds, I have a heart and I have a, a jar that's red. Saying those things out loud, I'm already doing self-therapy. I'm doing self-care. Yeah. I'm in bottom-up regulation. And then deep breathing, is another thing we can do to get bottom-up regulation to help UG calm down. And I'm not talking about, sometimes we breathe and we breathe in a way that we, you know, which only makes our heart go faster. I oftentimes tell people when you're doing deep breathing, I want you to breathe in like you're smelling a rose and then breathe out like you're blowing out a birthday cake. So it's a longer breath out, shorter breath in, but Ugg responds well to that, right? Ugg likes roses and birthday cakes, but all those things get us back into our body so that our mind, the CEO, can eventually come back online. You know, um, I want to ask you about this because when I get really, really triggered, the only thing that I have found that is really effective for me is to go run. And I don't normally run regularly. Like it's, I used to be a runner, but it was hard on my knees. So if Kristen's running, you know, she's been triggered lately. <laughs> so, okay. So do you think that, that the, I've wondered if the combination of, obviously when you run, you have to deep breathe. And the bilateral stimulation of both feet hitting the ground. And it almost, it almost can feel aggressive to me to do that. Then by the time I'm done, I usually, I get that runner's high, you know, but I also just feel that calming. So do you think like aggressive exercise is a great option for people when they're, when they're, cause some people, when they're triggered, it shows up as rage. And other times it shows up as just like shock and like, like fro frozenness. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is what you're doing. And what I think if we actually listen to ourselves, even in hearing you, Kristen, in this moment, we actually have a lot of solutions for ourselves. We just know what feels good. What feels good in that moment is you running. Well, I want you to imagine the next time you're running that Ugg is just running next to you, right? He's just, you guys are on a, uh, because you're in your body, right? And, and yeah. I think that bilateral stimulation, what a fascinating idea, Kristen. There's so much we don't know about our brain, but that your body, even being in flight, I've had women who yeah. have triggered and they will just run out of their house, not even knowing that they didn't think about it. They just, yeah. okay, well, that's UG, right? That is that flight of, I've got to get safe. That's what UG asks. 
so doing that as a way of managing for you is a perfect solution, mm-hmm. right? And, and I think if we were so unique, each one of us has these things that end up feeling good. I've had women say, I don't want to take a hot bath. That makes me more irritated than I'm other that like, oh, I really need that. Like it. So what works best for you um, yeah. to calm your body down? But it's, it has to do with body and getting that cerebellum back online. This is the cerebellum. It's the hard drive of your computer. I'm, it's in the back of your head. And anything you can do to get that activated again um, does something in your brain to help um, activate a center to get your body to quiet down again. So some of us get flooded like I do with those intense feelings and other people, they get stuck in that freeze state. You have a great graph in your book that talks about the arousal thermostat and the comfort zone of where we don't want to be too hot or too cold, but kind of right in that easy present state. So how does that, the body's arousal thermostat, and to clarify to our listeners, we're not referring to sexual arousal. We're talking about nervous system arousal, right? Right. Um, how does that arousal thermostat work and how do we stay in that comfort zone? And kind of a, a, an, a, an additional question is for the people that go into freeze, especially what are some techniques? Do they use the same techniques to get back to that calm or are there different things that they need to work on? Different things. There's different things. So many of us, um, when we've been in a chronic state, of stress and distress. So we've, we've tried to fight against it and things aren't changing. And then we try to run away from it. And that doesn't seem to change things either, right? Fight and flight. Over time, what our body and brain does is it collapses. It goes into more of a collapse or freeze or fold state. And the fight or flight has to do with arousal, like, you know, uh, your heart beating and you might um, have anxiety, you might have high blood pressure. There's all kinds of cortisol that's released in your body. If you're in fold, you might struggle with sleep issues. There might be depression. You might have dissociation. Uh, there might be learned helplessness. I mean, there's lots of things that can happen when we mm-hmm. get stuck in those places. The center part is, is really um, doing things to help you not be in such a heightened state or in a lower state. So let's let's talk about some of the solutions. Um, I have some people that are in freeze and they're completely unplugged from their body. So I might recommend that they do some somatic therapy, which is body therapy in order to help you begin to move your body to connect with it again. Mm-hmm. Um, Sometimes people that are in freeze, um, I might uh, have them go and do some neurobiofeedback because their brain is, is, is stuck and it needs to have something to loosen the ground again. Um, I just, I feel, cause so much can happen when we're in freeze. We don't set boundaries, right? If we're in freeze. 
But some of the interventions are uh, for both fight and flight, for yours, cognitive behavioral therapy um, is good. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, EMDR. Um, small groups. I know you have small groups that helps with emotional regulation. I have small groups as well in my brave one community. And I watch the women as they come in and they're in fight or flight, right? They're in that higher, you know, higher regulated state. They co-regulate when they're caring for each other, when they're validating each other, when they're sharing and talking with each other, that is connection that helps them stay in that um, healthy zone. Um, our spiritual faith, some of us are so wounded, right? Mm -hmm. We have such wounds in our spiritual life and our faith, because where are you, God? Why aren't you doing anything to change things? And, yeah. and so giving yourself space and time and love around those issues and, you know, taking the time you need to heal. Um, some of us connect spiritually and that's like, it's our life source, right? And, and it comes easier. Well, don't shame yourself if you're struggling with that. A spiritual faith trauma is one of my dirty dozen in the book that I talk about. It's, it's a real thing um, to be impacted by, um, by betrayal. There's, there's a lot of things we can do to keep us in the comfort zone um, and help our body stay out of that fight or flight or out of that hypo uh, arousal, which is fold or freeze. Mm. So speaking of the, the fold or freeze and the hypo arousal, you mentioned learned helplessness. And I read something about that in your book and how when a partner, especially when they have chronic pervasive trauma in their family of origin, they often enter into this marriage. And when the betrayal erupts, they, that learned helplessness continues on. Can you explain to our listeners what learned helplessness is and what they can do to overcome yeah. if that's something they identify with? Yeah. So learned helplessness can come from, like you said, early traumas in our family of origin. Learned helplessness can also come through uh, constant and ongoing pornography use, constant infidelities, mm -hmm. uh, ongoing emotional, sexual, verbal abuse, psychological abuse that's happening, chronic patterns of gaslighting. All those things are um, harmful to us. And if we don't find a way through it, if we aren't uh, setting boundaries, we end up kind of being absorbed into this. It's, I call it, it's more of like a one down position. It's this powerless helplessness where that you feel inside that there's nothing I can, can do about it. I was just chatting with somebody very recently and she said, you know what I've learned, I went through, she had this and she said, I, I felt in my heart that if I can't beat them, I'm going to just join them. And there were some things that areas that she crossed over in her own moral um, plumb line because she was so despondent. She, she went to this place of just letting go. Um, that's where I think some of the small groups uh, can really help because as we hear other stories where 
they're starting to protect themselves. Or maybe you might share about a situation that happened. I've had this happen in small groups where one person will share and someone else will go, that just made me really mad. That's not okay that that's happening. Now that person would learn helplessness, like wakes up on the inside because hearing that other person's voice say, that's not okay. It's like validating. And they can begin to wake up themselves and say, it's not, but then they go, but I don't know what to do about it. I have something that I, I talk about in my book and in my Brave One community, I do some teaching on it. It's, it's called my empowerment wheel. And I love, oh, I love your empowerment wheel. I wish we could show our listeners that because it is very powerful. Is it on your website anywhere? It is. I have okay. it in my, I have it on my website. It's at braveone.com forward slash store. You can buy it if you want it. Yeah. I talk about it in my book um, because I want women to have a tool that they can use right away to get out of that victim seat, that powerlessness and helplessness. Um, because the path out of that actually is, is taking responsibility for yourself. The opposite of being a victim and we've all been victims. If you've been sexually violated, betrayed, right? Those are, we're victims. But my goal is to help us not stay in that seat. So working with women on my empowerment wheel, and I do a boot camp in my community on this, but you go up to responsibility. And this isn't what you say to yourself is I take responsibility for my life. I have a voice and I can consider what I need. I can make choices. That is the path out of learned helplessness. Now, some people say, but that sounds so hard. I don't even know where to begin. And I go, you begin by just memorizing that one statement, just saying it out loud. Saying it out loud is a step in the right direction. And when I have something that happens to me, Kristen, and I use my empowerment wheel all the time because I have stuff that happens to me just like you and everybody else, right? And I, I do this when the bottom drops out and I'm feeling like, oh my goodness, I say this, I go, okay, I take responsibility for my life. I have a voice. I consider what I need. I can make choices. And then I go, what do I need? What do I need? What do I need? Yes. That's one and of the best questions ever. I what know. do I need? I what, what am I feeling and what do I need? Those two. I know. And so yeah. many don't know those things. We don't have those answers right. to it. It's Okay. Because I didn't have it either. Remember, I'm the trauma squared girl. Yeah, I had to learn how to develop a sense for what I'm feeling. And I've also had to learn to develop a sense for what I need. And a lot of times, this is what we'll say when I'm working in my groups, my empowerment groups, I huh. say, what do you need? And then partner will say this. Well, I need him to stop doing what he's doing <laughs> when he goes and picks up his phone and, you know. I'm like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, where are you? And she's like, that's a need. I need him to stop. And I go, well, actually it's not, uh, it's not your need. It's what you want him to do. Now on my empowerment wheel, we often go into rescue, fix control. That's another stance. Yeah. I, I, and when you say what you need, it might be safety. It might be sanity. It might be trust right? It might be fidelity. There's a lot of these very precious things that we need that are worth fighting for. Um, I mean, women in the battle, right? In your groups, it's such a lovely name because it's really 
what you're worth fighting for, you're worth it and what you're willing to fight for. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even if you might feel like you need him to stop so that you can feel safe, that's not within your realm of responsibility because you have no power to stop him. Right. Right. On my empowerment wheel on one side, are the reactive stances, which is, I call that the rescuer. But if you follow the arrow over to the other side, yeah, the, what we all long for, it's collaboration. Yeah, Collaboration is, hey, let's work together. I'll do my part. You do your part. Right. That's what we long for. But in, even in recognizing, oh, he's not doing his part. That's good insight for us. It's very good insight because yeah, we don't want to be his mother. I mean, I think most of us at some point in the recovery process kind of maybe become a parent type, you know, babysitting, trying to get him to stop and it doesn't work. I mean, yeah, I, we can I, set boundaries and we, we can make requests yeah. and we can take a break and let go, but yeah. we cannot make them stop. That is trauma-induced control. Yes. Oh, I love that phrase. Did you come up with that? Trauma-induced control. Actually, I did not. That came out of my training with APSATs. Yeah. Um, because it was a real mind shift change for me Yep. Uh, to think about betrayal-induced control, trauma-induced control, trauma-induced. Mm-hmm. We're trying to fix the thing that's hurting us. And it, it, it's, it's like we long for them. We're, we're trying to do it because we're in pain. But when we come to the point of realizing that we need to be able to notice what we're doing, they're doing, and if they're not doing what we want them to do and what they're doing is hurting us, then I go usually back down into the victim seat for a moment. And then I still have to go back into responsibility. I still have to get to that place even though I don't like what he's doing, even though it's hurting me. And in that case, responsibility is protection. I need safety. Well, I can't wait for him to assure my safety. I have got to assure my own, which is boundaries, right? Might be removing mm-hmm. ourselves from that situation. There's all kinds of things we can do. But the locus of control, I like to have us always internalize that sense of empoweredness. And uh, I, I really believe the more empowered we become, the more we own our choices, the more we're in the driver's seat, we get things to change. Yes. Even if they don't change, we get things to change for ourselves. And many times I see an empowered woman and, and there are changes that are happening in her home. I know you probably see that in your small groups. I see that in my community as well. It's just, but that's why you and I are doing what we're doing because there's been a lot of people just laying flat on the ground without, um, without help. And, and when we get empowered, things start happening. They do. They do. Even if it's not the things we want to have happen. I mean, I see women who end up with their marriage ending. And they've done everything they possibly could. 
that happened to you. That happened to me too. I lost my first marriage because of sexual betrayal ongoing that would not stop. You know, we talked a little bit, we alluded to the whole spirit, the, the spiritual crisis, the crisis of faith that occurs for many of us partners. And do I remember correctly that your first husband was in ministry? Yes, he was a pastor. Right. And so my first husband and I were in ministry, full-time ministry as well. And I think there's a whole other level of trauma that happens when there's a public nature to your role like that in a faith community. And there's a whole other level, I think, of crisis of faith that happens as well. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on... um, on that crisis of faith for partners, especially for partners that maybe have a background of being in ministry or having a spouse that's in ministry. Ah, oh, I just want to hug them right now. Cause I yeah, know it, it is, um, it's so hard. And I think in any position ministry, or if there's, you know, a politician, I mean, look at Ravi Zacharias, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. it, ministry and his wife and their family. I mean, they've all gone through it. And I think what's incredibly difficult is it's scary to share because you realize if you share, if you tell somebody what's happening in your marriage, how your husband who is a pastor or associate pastor or a head deacon or whatever that position is, uh, um, he could lose his job. And, and that's one of the risks, right? And yeah, where in other relationships, now, if he sexually acts out at work, and there's a sexual harassment case or something, uh, he might lose his job anyway, right? But I'm saying, in the ministry setting, there are, it's a high probability that something is going to change. And I think that, Kristen, is what caused me to not say anything for so long. I think it was part of it was denial. And I think the other part of it was just incredible fear. Yeah. I knew once I said something, I had a sense the dominoes would start falling and that's what happened. Yeah. But if we don't, if we don't make a stand, if we don't get intervention, and I, and I'm saying this, and I know, as I even say it, it, it might hurt some hearts, but I, I really believe this the more and more I see it today because of how prevalent it is in our churches. Yes. When we don't get help and get intervention, we are colluding with deception. Mm. It's growing. And, um, and I, I, I know how hard it is. I did. And I, it wasn't an easy choice for me, but I'll tell you something through it. It gave Connor and I both a chance to face what we needed to face. And I look back at that and I don't have regrets. I mm-hmm. don't have regrets for having let the cat out of the bag, right? Have said something. And it it wasn't out of my good nature. It's because I got depressed. I was clinically depressed and I could not function. And so I shared it with one of the pastors on staff. I told them what was going on with Connor. And, you know, within uh, a few hours, Connor and I were in the pastor's office and there was somewhat of an intervention. 
Um, and we had to go into some treatment for pastors and their wives with issues. But um, the sad part is, you know, I, I imagine you fought for your hus- first husband and I know yes. I did for Connor, um, but that day came when uh, there was, for me, there was ongoing pornography, there was mm-hmm. ongoing affairs, there was prostitutes that were continuing and I just couldn't live with that revolving door anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I drew that line and filed for divorce and um, painful. But here I am today as someone that I believe God has called, invited into helping partners heal. And as I'm doing that, helping couples heal. And it's like, I, every time I'm talking with a partner, I feel like I'm talking with her and then I'm reaching in and through her to pull her husband or significant other out of the muck at the same time. And cause they're trapped in all this. They're, they're making choices. It's not like they're trapped. Like they don't have the key to their own cage. Right. But they, they're in such a dark place and um, a dark place that has no end. And they just keep going in into deeper, deeper places. So I, yeah. I do believe we're Ezers. I God named us Eve is Ezer Kenegdo, which if you go back to the ancient Hebrew, and I talk about this in my book, it's um, warrior companion of fierce strength is really what I love it. And you, my dear, are a warrior companion of fierce strength. And I am a warrior companion of fierce strength. It's in our DNA. It's in our spiritual DNA. Um, those of you that are listening, right. Those wives and if your fiance or boyfriend or significant other, somebody that you're with, you're partnering with, I'm telling you that DNA us as being daughters of Eve, we are warriors, companions of fierce strength. And a lot of times stuff doesn't change until we disrupt what's happening in our world, not collude with it, but disrupt what's happening. Mm -hmm. And just say, no, I'm not okay with this. Yeah. A lot of times we do need, we need somebody to go with us, to hold our hand, to figure out what our next right thing is, right? That's what's so powerful about partner communities like yours and like ours. We need that. Um, but I even hope that if you're listening to us today, that you'll look at Dr. Sherry and I here and be like, okay, these women have done this. If they can do it, I can take my next right step. I can grow, I can heal, I can change. Um, Back to the whole crisis of faith question, Dr. Sherry, what do you tell your women or what do you talk about in your book when a woman is in that place of God, where are you? Where were you? And she's not even sure she can engage with him anymore because she feels so betrayed by God. I say, it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. There's no conveyor belt here. You're incredibly hurt. My chapter on where is God, I go into great detail on that because I lost faith. I mean, I had, I grew up in a time where they had no, well, this is even before this. I won't tell you how long ago that was, but I grew up with flannel graphs. So, you know, if you know what a flannel graph is, there's like pictures. And um, I just had an idea who God was uh, as a little girl, but man, I'm telling you with all that happened with Connor it's like I had a patchwork quilt that I, I had to, when I talked about God, I had it all figured out these, but then 
what happened with Connor, it's like it blow, blew a big hole in the center of that patchwork quilt. And there was just a bunch of strings hanging down. And I had to rebuild my concept of God. I had to rebuild. Mm-hmm. Um, why doesn't God step in when bad things happen? Um, I do not believe that God is the author of evil. I believe in evil. Evil, there's dark stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, the porn industry, I believe, is sheer evil. Uh, but I do believe that God is working to redeem us. I have these things. If you go to my website, they're called God sightings. I tell a little bit about it on my website. And I also talk about it in my book, but I've chronicled times that God shows up in a way that, um, I just feel like I'm a post office girl. I'm, you know, I'm noting it and time stamping it. And they've been double rainbows over buildings where I've been speaking at, or, um, uh, just the, the picture of a, a horse, a white horse. There's so many of them. I, I know we're limited on time, but all I can say this is I have seen afresh that God loves us and God has every intention of redeeming us from whatever situation with our spouse or a significant other, or just within our own realm. Um, and that relationship with God for me has bounced back. I didn't have for a while. And I have so much love and compassion for those that are yeah. struggling that way. I said, just don't shame yourself. It's a, it's a result of spiritual faith trauma. Like I can't trust anyone or I can't trust my judgment. Those are negative beliefs that get wired in at the crime scene of betrayal trauma. Well, guess what? There's one that's, I can't trust God. Mm-hmm. Your brain has wired it in to protect yourself and it takes time and work to Mm -hmm. um, do the trauma work in order to get into truth again and get your mind set into what is real, what is honest, what is true about you. Mm. So we can just let ourselves be where we are and yet at the same time being connected to other people who not who are pushing us but who are able to be present with us and still love us no matter what kind of mess we're in in communities like the brave one community and women in the battle is such a powerful powerful thing and i am so thankful that you took the the time out of your busy schedule dr sherry to spend with me and with our listeners i am so grateful for your work And just thank you so much for spending this time with us. I loved it. I love being with you. And it was great. I want to share one closing thought. I have this ring that I have. um, It's a verse in Isaiah. And I had it put in Hebrew when I was in Israel a few years ago. And it says this, fear not, for I am with you. And I just want to leave us with that thought. If you're wondering, if you're alone, um, I love the fact that God didn't say, fear not, period. God said, fear not for I'm with you. So no matter where you're at today, um, God is aware. Kristen's here loving on you. I'm loving on you. Um, We care about you. We care about where you're at and what you're going through. And it was just an honor to be here with you today. Thank you so much. Just 